Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 337. Thanks to the Respect Sextet, they recorded the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com, and their music is great, so please go and check it out. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. He's online at twitter.com slash Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Also, thanks to All About Jazz for carrying this show. You'll find it at allaboutjazz.com. And thanks to the many of you who have become members and helped keep the jazz session going. This show is free to listen to, but it's not free to make. So if you'd like to keep the show going, please do become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. My guest today is the drummer Derek Dickens. He's put out an ambitious and I think very successful album called Speed Date, in which he does a bunch of short tunes with many different players. And we didn't quite get to this in the interview, but I'll tell you that they had uh, each person came in and they had something like 90 minutes or maybe slightly less to do all the recording they were going to do. That was the way Derek set it up. And so the person came in, they just went through as many tracks as they could. And the next person came in, literally one person walked out and the next one walked in the door. So it was very much like a speed dating session. And then as you'll hear in the interview, uh, Derek had also set up some 74 second pieces where there was a timer that just counted down. And when it reached the end of the 74 seconds, that was it. You had to stop. So it's a really cool concept. And I think it works really, really well on this record. Um, Matt Wilson gets mentioned a lot in this interview. And so we'll start with a track from Derek's album that features he and Matt Wilson playing together. My guest is the drummer, Derek Dickens. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. It is a pleasure to be here. I have to say, first of all, tell me again what it is that we're drinking. We're drinking some very fine green tea. Do you remember the name? It's like Sencha Ariake? Is yes, that right? I okay, believe so. Cool. This is, this is some very fine green tea. I try. Only the best for you. Thank you so much. I wish the listeners could be experiencing this. In fact, it's so good. I'm taking a drink right now. Well, I'm going to follow suit. Oh, yeah. Take a, take a drink of this stuff. Oh, this is so mm. good. I'm telling you. I, it's also cool. I don't normally describe where we are. But in your apartment, not only is there a room with drums and a bicycle, which I love, there's also an entire like fashion design room, which I don't have one of in my house, and I kind of wish I did. Yeah, well, you're welcome over any time. Thank you. Yes. And we'll ride bikes. It's a 1943 Schwinn, by the way. Oh, uh, yeah. Just, it looked pretty cool. I didn't um, want to go in and drool on it, but it looked pretty neat. Later. Yeah. <laughs> this is fantastic. I, I just love everything about it. So uh, the new record, which is great, uh, is called Speed Date, and... It, it's a fantastic idea, and I think the the way it came about, the inspiration for it is really cool. So maybe we can start by just having you tell people, and it's kind of conveyed in the name, what the idea of the album Speed Date is. Speed Date was uh, it was a late night with Matt Wilson idea. Actually, it was an idea of mine. I just I presented it to him, and he egged me along. Uh, really good friends. I had lived in New York for about two years and playing lots of duos. Um, doing a lot of sound checks for Matt. Um, and so half of Matt's band is on here. And uh, um, 
lots of improv, some written tunes, some, you know, a little bit of everything. And I, uh, I just wanted to do something with my friends. And the other thing is I had, you know, I'd been into avant improvisation music for a while. And one of the things that, um, was hard to get into with me and, and a lot of my friends are, uh, usually the sheer, um, length of those first <laughs> albums you go by. And, um, you know, the first track is 25 minutes long. Right. And, and that's, that's hard to grasp. Um, it's, it's hard to, uh, wrap your brain around, especially if you're starting out. And so I wanted small short tunes. Um, and we had really been listening to, um, Blackwell and Ornette and just all that, all that stuff. And, and then the duos and, you know, just said, I've got to make a record. And, uh, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to make a record and really started writing, uh, right before this. I'd never written tunes before. Uh, my master's degree is in classical music and my undergrad is, uh, I was a band director. So wrote for this, wrote small, short tunes and, uh, did this. You talk about uh, when you're writing music that you know is going to be played in duet. So with, I think, in every case, only a single line melodic instrument unless the other person is Matt and it's a drummer or a maker's mark bottle, which, as it turns out, is also a single line melodic instrument, which I had not previously (laughs) realized. But it's good. It's good to have more things added to my breadth of knowledge. Um, But when you're writing things that you know have to be actualized by you on the drums and then a single line melodic instrument, does that... Does that push your writing in a particular direction? Does it necessitate that you, for example, outline harmonies in a particular way in the single line instrument? Can you talk about what it's like writing for duo playing? When, when I decided to start writing for duo, I was mainly writing melodies. Um, I'd been playing a lot with Kirk Kanofsky and Kirk and, and, and most of his friends and most of the people I play with write really short pieces. Many times, no chord changes. Um, I found out that my, the way I write tends to, um, um, scream the chord changes. I mean, they're like, you know, blues and, and it's, you don't really have to delve too hard to, <laughs> to figure out, um, what I'm, what I'm going at. Really easy tunes. Um, and I wanted the, for me, I wanted there to be a melody that you could walk away from and hum. Um, to me, I, I love that about music. And again, with avant stuff, you don't always do that. Yeah. Well, and I think actually, um, I mean, you touched on something that comes all throughout this album. And that in fact, you mentioned, uh, listening to Ornette Coleman and Don Cherry and Ed Blackwell. And, you know, when that music came out, everyone, freaked out about it but when you go back and listen to a lot of it now i mean a lot of that stuff is incredibly singable i mean it's really really great melodies you know really strong pretty defined uh rhythmic parts i mean it it's music that i think is a lot easier for me to understand than a lot of the things that it probably gave birth to and all throughout this record there are places where tunes start and i think oh what is that a, some tune? I've, that must be some standard I've heard before and then i look and the writing credit is yours or one of the people who's playing with you i mean this thing really you think it might, it would be easy to imagine it going in another direction, but this album really is a lot about melody, even in the, the kind of freest parts. 
The the funny thing is, uh, I actually expected this album to be really out, a lot more out than it is, and uh, the the day just turned into this. And uh, I, either I was too dumb to make it go the other way, or smart enough to stay out of the way. Uh, I think is 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 the best thing. I let it happen, and you know I'm the only constant. Everybody brings a completely different voice to that, and uh, I picked out melodies with people, and and the tunes that I wrote also kind of had had to do with something I was going through, or you know a feeling I had, or or something like that. Will you uh, go through the list of people who are on here and tell folks who joins you on this record? All right. So, uh, of course, Matt Wilson. That's always fun. You have to include him on anything. Uh, he brings the life. Um, Jeremy Uden um, is the actually the only person I had never played with before. Oh, wow. We had just spoken and hung a little bit. But uh, I love all his Plainville stuff. I'm from the South, and it makes me feel like going home. How did he end up on here if you guys had never played before? I just asked him. Oh, great. I think that's one of the cool things is uh, moving to New York, and uh, if you just ask people, most of the time they will show up. So that's with, with little or no, you know, you don't even have to threaten them. They'll show up. Yeah. In fact, uh, if I can jump in here for one second to say – Yes, I saw you yesterday as we we're recording this interview and, and a week ago in the time people are listening to this. And we were at a conference where people were talking about social media and jazz and, and kind of using the online world. And they were talking about other things too, but that was one of the things. And at one point I was talking with the guitarist, Mike Baguetta, who's also been on this show, who mentioned that it's important to remember to actually talk to people in the physical world as well. And it sounds like, I mean, that's, something you found people that you wanted to play with and you just went up to them and said, Hey, let's make this thing happen. I think it's, it's a useful lesson for musicians to remember that it is possible to also talk to people actually in the world. I think it's the most important part. And, and Matt and I talk about the hang a lot. Um, uh, you learn, I, I believe some of your best lessons. I, I used to tech for Matt a lot more, Matt Wilson. And so, you know, driving um, Matt and John Schofield, to Albany. Um, that is probably better than any course you can take from NYU or the new school or hanging out with, with John afterwards and, and hearing him go, oh man, that was the best that tune ever sounded. And uh, God, there's so many musicians I had to, to drive around. But he, even in, in undergrad when I, you know, I was doing the classical degree, but really got into jazz there. And uh, I was always in charge of picking people up at the airport and to hang with uh, Mike Clark and, um, and the name escapes me, the percussionist on the Headhunters album. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's embarrassing. Wow. As soon as you asked me, it's gone out of my head. Yeah. All so, right. We'll insert this sometime we'll, we'll, later. We'll insert this later. Smart. I will go look at it. Yes, because that's really annoying. So I got to hang out with, with those guys, and they told me the story about – Bill Cosby being in the sound booth and, you know, during most of this recording and, and, you know, you don't, you don't learn most of that stuff in the book. And there were some other really great stories, which should never be <laughs> put on the radio or anywhere. And that, that's the thing. And, and, you know, talking to, to Mike Clark, he was like, if you're ever in New York, call me and let's hang. So I, I think if you just ask people, most of the time, most people are really hip. Um, and uh, that's it. And the same thing with, with Jeff Letter. Uh, I, uh, I used to have to sound check for Matt when he was off doing other things. And so we played a lot. And uh, Kirk Kanufke, same thing. And he lives down the road. So that makes it very, very easy. Um, when you say you used to have to sound check for Matt, do you mean that you would play the drums when he was not there so that – they could get the sound of the drums in the sound check? Yes. Oh, cool. One of the, the, the weirdest things that happened to me, uh, Matt, I studied with Matt for five years doing NEA grassroots grants. Um, Knoxville, Tennessee does not have a ton of museums, so they put a lot of money in uh, grants for artists. So started taking with him, started living in his basement for a month at a time and, and hanging out. He got me to move here. I had finished touring with the the girl that was on a girl that was on Columbia Records Robinella she was on Columbia Records I was had been touring with her and she stopped 
And uh, Matt was like, get get up here. So I did. And, and uh, the week that I was up here, he dislocated his shoulder. And I, I moved here on a Sunday, and I believe on Thursday I had to sound check at Birdland for him. <laughs> so that was, uh, yeah, it was an opportune time. It was great. I didn't actually realize that was a thing until this very moment. I, I've never heard that that actually happened until this very moment. Yeah, he, he was uh, doing yoga poses, I believe. <laughs> and maybe I'm not supposed to... No, no, no I don't mean tell. that he dislocated his shoulder. <laughs> oh. I mean, I had never heard that so- there was a situation in which someone else would sit in playing the artist part for the purpose of a sound check. I don't know how that escaped me, but yeah. in 20 years doing this, I've never realized that that happened. I guess except you see the guitar techs sometimes play the guitars yeah. or whatever. But And Matt's a busy person. I mean, sure, you know, yeah. he, he's teaching and... Flying in from gigs, and it and it started a lot of it started with uh, he'd fly in from Italy and and no sleep and and you really don't want to drive four hours somewhere and, right and I didn't have a job so it was like nice to hang out I mean to the point where I would have paid almost paid him to go along for the ride you know I guess <laughs> to be at the show for free um, I've also been to the Zildjian factory we we play. I believe in the way he plays the right symbol. I believe in Matt. Matt for president. <laughs> um, I believe in the way he plays the right symbol. And there's a lot of stick. And so I've gone to, to Zildjian and helped pick out symbols before and done a lot of stuff. Say, well, I know I'm totally steering you away from the initial question I asked you, which is fine. That's, well, there's plenty of time to mention okay. all people in the band. <laughs> so say more about playing the right symbol. Is that... Tell, tell us what you mean by how Matt plays the ride symbol and I guess the, the this thing that you hold as an object of faith. <laughs> the object of faith. Um, it's, it's the sound. Um, he, he plays it, you know, with, uh, open, kind of an open hand, uh, gets a full beat out of it. Um, he has a thing called the ride symbol ritual, which, you know, if you really think about, um, one of, one of the things that drummers, uh, I feel have an issue with is, is long notes, short notes. Sometimes we feel, we feel that, uh, drummers feel that, uh, you hit a drum and that's, it makes a, a note, a short note, and that's it. And that's not the case. I understand that a lot from classical music where you want a crash cymbal to ring, especially if you've counted 400 measures into a symphonic piece and you have one crash. <laughs> It better be pretty amazing. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's the length of the note before the next hit. And, um, it's, uh, it's a, it's part of the swing sounds and just really, I know that I'm not doing justice to this. This should be a, this should be Matt Wilson voiceover on his <laughs> right symbol ritual. And so is this something that you've adopted in your own playing as a result of studying with Matt? Yeah. Same, same kind of thing that, uh, um, Kenny Washington does and uh, a big full ride sound. And did it necessitate a change in your playing? Was it something you had to, some shift you had to consciously make from what you had been doing to this style you're describing or was it already part of it? It was already part of it. He just, he brought it out a little bit Mm. more. Um, yeah, that's, that's really hard to explain. Yeah. Now now that I'm on the spot. (laughs) And especially since we can't either see or, well, we actually could, we could, we could bring the, the, the symbol in here in a bit. Maybe let's do that. (laughs) Well, let's do it. Let's do it right now. Let's pause this thing. Let's go get a ride symbol. (laughs) Let's actually make this happen. We have a symbol for God's sake. We shouldn't be trying to describe it when we can actually play a ride symbol. Okay. All right. So we'll take a break. All right. We'll come back and we'll hear what the ride symbol sounds like. (laughs) Bye. Thank you. 
Okay, and we're back. No time has passed for you in the listening audience, but uh, you know we had a chance to get a symbol out, set it up, have some more tea. We actually went for a jog. And so now we're here. We're back. There's a ride symbol, and uh, Derek has a stick. And now we're going to describe we'll, – we can stop calling it the Matt Wilson method. We'll call it Derek Dickens' method of ride symbol smacking for the moment here. <laughs> so describe to me what you just described to me. Using a nice full stroke on on the ride symbol, and it's, it, it's kind of swing contagious. I'm going to get that on T-shirt. Nice. Swing contagious. And so your hand is it, you're starting up above the symbol quite a ways, yeah. and the stick is really is really swinging, really making an arc. Yeah, really making an arc, and you're you're basically you have a symbol, and you're actually engaging the symbol, and it, you can hear it, and it it's a great tone. I I think it is, but you know whatever, to each his own. <laughs> um, so here we go. So you, you can slow that down and, and, you know, the other thing with Matt is, is listening to that whole note. You have an attack and then the cymbal rings as it goes down. Then you have another attack. So. So that's, it's, it's just hitting the cymbal and, and nice open and having a good stick and having a good cymbal. But, you know, other people, don't always engage the symbol, and so you get a little bit of an anemic sound. Which also has to do with, you know, you're gripping the stick too tight, and uh, not that you, that's a sound you can make. It just, uh, to me, if you want to get a band excited and, and swing, you know, you the ride symbol. Now you mentioned in the big band era that it was all about the big ride sound, but can you do that when you're playing fast too, when you really have to drive a band at a fast tempo? It becomes a little harder. And, uh, that's where a lot of practice comes in that I, <laughs> and you know, as the minute you leave, I'll go back and practice. Cause I'm sure Matt Wilson is going to, uh, to be like, you got it all wrong, son. And, uh, so I, you know, I just we we play the symbol a little bit alike. In fact, this week I have interviewed uh, Matt Wilson, Jack DeJanet, and you. One day, the next day, the next day. So three three drummers. And uh, Matt talked about Jack in his interview, and you talked about Matt in yours. So if I just could have gotten Jack to talk about both of you, it would have been perfect. But anyway, the point being that uh, one of the things that Matt said was that he once helped Jack set up his drums at a festival somewhere, maybe at Newport. And he said to Jack – uh, he could tell the story better than I can, but he was saying to Jack, you know, it's just amazing the sound you get out of the drums. And he said there were people like, you know, walking around and talking kind of around while they were setting up. And Jack just picked up a stick and he just hit the floor tom one time. And the way Matt described it was like, you know, when you see classic footage like in the jungle when something frightens the animals and the birds all fly out of the trees and, you know, the elephants trumpet and run. And he said it was like that kind of sound, like the whole room just woke up and that sound just filled the whole room. And it it strikes me that what he was talking about and what Jack is famous for and what you're talking about is an approach to playing the drums that's 
that's not just about the time, but about utilizing the full sound, the full sonic possibility of the instrument, of the drum set. Is that an accurate statement? Definitely. That's very accurate. So does what you're talking about with the ride cymbal and the way that you approach hitting it, does it apply to the, the other drums in a drum set as well? Absolutely. I think all, all that stuff applies, and especially coming from a classical background where you learn to play with a bunch of different items and uh, different ways of hitting. And, you know, Dan Weiss is amazing at that, too. He has tabla backgrounds, and, and uh, he plays... You can do it on anything, you know, if you have that idea. But it's it really applies to all the drums, and uh, yeah, it's it. I just think it 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 makes the sound beefier. And I'm not talking about I'm not talking about loudness. I mean, there we all know drummers that play way too loud, and uh, and it's tough to be in a room with them uh, without hearing protection. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about engaging the cymbal and. And really working on a ride cymbal sound, a, a swing sound. And I think it has, it goes hand in hand. And I've heard drummers say before uh, on this show and just in other contexts, uh, say something which I can't do, but which is they'll say, you know, I hear one hit of the ride cymbal and I know it's X. You know, I can tell it's Philly Joe or whoever, you know, whoever it might be because people spend a lot of time working on kind of an individual sound. I think, I mean, certainly I know as a listener, that's something I often take for granted, especially with the drums. I think it's almost easier to imagine any other instrument having a real individual sound. And and I mean sound. I don't mean uh, the stylistic properties of the way the person plays the drums. I think that we can all imagine, you know, the difference between like a Gene Krupa solo and a Max Roach solo from back in the day or, you know, people nowadays we think of. But that idea that you're talking about of a real a sonic approach to the drum set is something I think I probably take for granted. And I would guess that other people might too. It seems like it's a pretty, but it's a pretty crucial thing to consider if you're going to play the drums. It sounds like. I think so too. It's part of, uh, I believe getting older and, and getting your sound. Mm. Um, it has to do with, you know, equipment sounds different too. I mean, some of my, my some of my favorite Billy Higgins sound is the, it's a symbol company, Peisty 602. And a it kind of was high pitched and and set on top of the band, and it was really sounded great and super swinging. And most people nowadays don't really play high pitched cymbals, and uh, that's that's cool. I'm not sure where I was going with that, but high pitched cymbals. But yeah, I think a lot of it has to do mostly with the person, and equipment is is second always. Equipment can be. Some people think that equipment comes first. Um, I, if you can't play the equipment, then it doesn't matter how great it is. Um, I work in a vintage drum shop, and I have to remind myself of that all the time. This is I'm going to just just keep displaying my ignorance because it's fun. So for you always hear you know if you're a piano player, obviously you play whatever instrument is there when you get there. And these days, with the way airlines are, that's becoming more and more common for bass players too, where they fly from city to city, and there's a different bass in every city. For upright bass players, I mean. Uh, in the case of drummers, uh, I often have seen in festivals when I watch people set up that a lot of things are there, but a drummer will like bring their own cymbals and snare, for example. Are those the things that make someone's drum sound most characteristic of them, would you say? That's definitely. Again, cymbal. I have shown up to gigs with a ride cymbal and been very, very happy with that. And our, especially the ride cymbal-snare drum combo. But again... You can lead with a cymbal. I, I definitely think that's part of your sound. And, you know, it's the, the New York way of the horror story of having your cymbal stolen from you. And that's, you know, I can't think of a worse death, you know, <laughs> than, to, than to, I finally found a cymbal that, you know, doesn't make me cringe. And then someone you know, breaks into your car and it's gone. And it's right? gone. <laughs> or, you know, to get you point blank and you know, it's right. Like, uh, um, yeah. I mean, I, I think many, there, there are so many really great drummers out there that can lead with just a cymbal note. Bye. <laughs> 
when you play uh, in a duet setting like on the Speed Date record, uh, it, it strikes me that it really gives you a chance to actually put into practice the things that you've just been talking about because you're not dealing with other instruments filling up most of the sonic spectrum. In most of these cases, there's a fairly high range instrument, cornet or trumpet or saxophone, and then you, and most of the sonic space is filled up with just those two things. It seems like it really allows you to make use of these principles that you're talking about. It's the, uh, again, we'll talk about Matt Wilson, the allower. Mm. You know, you have to, you have to be able to, to lead the follow, then follow, and then get out of the way. <laughs> and especially in the duo situation, um, there's some really great, uh, takes on here, especially the, the one minute, um, 14 second things. And we, we haven't talked about that, but they were, um, I had a timer sitting on a piano and, and, you know, when it got to one minute, 14 seconds, you started playing. And when it hit zero, I told, I told them that if you weren't done playing, I was going to have them cut it off so it sounded like a tape stopping. It was great. We all ended, um, but especially on something like that, where there were there's no music. It's a one minute fourteen improvisation. You definitely have to be able to lead and follow and and see where it goes, see what happens. How did you set seventy four seconds as the time? Was it just totally random, or what? it was? I yeah pulled it out of thin air, and I think we talked about it. Uh, one minute I didn't feel like was long enough, and a minute and a half was too much time. I, I tend to overthink things. Mm. And uh, we, the, the more amount of time you put on a situation, I think you, it gives you more time to overthink things. It just worked out. So that, that might have been uh, a late-night conjuring of events. Who knows? So about a day ago, I asked you about the people who are on this record, and you know yeah. now I think 24 hours have passed, and we've gotten as far as Jeff Letterer. <laughs> so we've mentioned two people. Oh, no, and I think uh, Matt – what's his name? Wilson was Matt on Wilson this record. Yeah, and, and Jeremy. Jeremy Uden and Jeff Letterer. Uh, so now there's still four people left. So at the rate we're going, this will be a six-hour interview. So take right. us through the list. Uh, next is uh, Ben Cohen, who's mm -hmm. a really good buddy of mine from Knoxville, um, who actually I started playing free with. He was the first person that ever came to my house to play duo with. Um, in Knoxville, I was really lucky. I, I played with a lot of bluegrass, jazz artists, and, uh, you know, I played R&B and a lot of jazz with this guy named Donald Brown, who was a jazz messenger. Mm -hmm. And it was all, you know, bop and, and swing, and uh, I knew that I needed to branch out. So he really got me into and gave me some great CDs and to get started on, and he moved up here. So he's he's up doing the same thing I am.
And uh, the next person is John Crowley, who one of the first people I met when I moved here, and um, trumpet player, uh, great player, and uh, we played in a bunch of different bands together. That's great. And that's uh, we mentioned Kirk, Kirk earlier. Kirk, Kirk Kanofsky, who yeah. lives down the road and is, is awesome. It's, it's, he, he's great to hang out with. You were writing the pieces, uh, the ones that you contributed to this, which is obviously uh, the majority of them. Were you writing them with each of these specific players in mind, or were you just writing a series of melodies or uh, fragmentary ideas and then distributing them at random, or how did that work? Uh, half and half. Um, every every tune kind of tells a little bit of story about what what was going on and and why I wrote it. Um, Roy at the store. Um, I knew I wanted a trumpet player on it. Um, this is about being in in Long Island and going by the Associated uh, in the subdivision where Matt Wilson and Roy Haynes live, and uh, seeing uh, Roy. In the produce section, and 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 so just to let everybody know, Roy Haynes is always Roy Haynes. He is never not Roy Haynes. And this is kind of the tune that that went through my my mind as Roy was strutting through the produce section of the Associated. He swings all day long. Whether he is, I'm sure, with while he is driving, he is swinging also. And, uh, and it just it was it was great to see Roy being Roy, 24/7. So that was Roy at the store.
yeah, so let's go back to talking about picking the people. I mean, obviously, everyone you picked is a is a top flight player, and uh, some of these folks have uh, you know been on either on this show or have many of most of them have played in bands that have been on this show one way or the other. Um, but you had a I mean a whole world of people to choose from in New York here. I mean, everybody is here. And so how did you – what were you looking for in, in duet partners? Uh, that was the tough one. Uh, my original list had um, 12 people on it. And um, I, I knew that I didn't want to put uh, four albums out at the same time. <laughs> um, uh, again, since this was a very do-it-yourself project, and I'm sure we'll talk about that that later. I uh, you know, wanted some bass players and um, – had talked to piano players and vocalists. Um, I really wanted to, and it just worked out with horn players. It 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 just the the more and more I thought about it and and thought about the tunes I had written, that really helped dictate the the way I went. Mm. Um, Jeremy is such an amazing saxophone player, and and so I I had, yeah, I wrote this this tune called Original Self. I had read a book. By that title, which ha- which is actually not really amazing book, I thought it was going to be about you know original self, the uh, you know everyone is born a genius and then you know growing up takes the genius out of you. Um, but I loved the the title and that was you know just some stuff I was going through and I knew that he would be perfect for that. Just his sound, his sound is so amazing. Um, and so by that point, you know Kirk and Jeremy and I just thought. I'm just going to do horn players, and and later, I, in, in retrospect, I believe this is a an, an idea that I'm going to do every three years. Um, it was really nice to have a lot of bass player and and piano players that uh, get you know they got mad at me because they weren't on the album, which is awesome. And singers, um, Amy Servini and I need to do a, a, a an all avant vocal <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> And and drum duet album, I think it would be great. Yeah, yeah, I totally support that idea. Uh, I I really like. In fact, I I was talking to Amy at one point about this record, and uh, she was saying how much she respected the fact that you decided just to do it, and now it exists. And I mean, I think it's great. It's beautiful. It's not like it came in this like vacuum sealed package, like you almost like you might put film through an x-ray in or get you know a very small amount of coffee or tea in uh and then it has this beautifully designed uh you know insert and it just it's it feels like a labor of love i mean it feels like something that is very close to who you are and it's a pretty ambitious way to start a recording career as a leader to do something like this uh can you talk about when you know, kind of when you got the idea and then how you actually realized it brought it into being so that we now have an album to talk about. Yeah, that was uh, lots of late nights and, and um, you know, it all comes down to money and how, you know, how can I get this to happen? Um, getting people to play, that was the easy part. Sure. And, uh, and writing the tunes, that was a little harder, you know, especially because I had just started doing that. But um, I... I had talked to a lot of people. Adam Schatz is a great friend. And, and everybody I talked to talks about their first three albums that they put out. And they got a thousand copies made. And they have 600 of each album in their parents' basement or, you know, their old room back home. And I did not want that. Um, a lot of the companies that let you print CDs really only allow you to do a thousand. Or you, or you can do five hundred, but for twenty bucks more, you get a thousand. Right. And to me, I, don't, I just that's not what I wanted to do. I'm I had to be very smart about it and understand. Uh, basically, I had to be real. <laughs> I had to be a realist with myself <laughs> and go. You're probably not going to sell a thousand of these. And if I do, you know, I, I had five hundred made. Um, I had a really good friend that screen printed and had him do um, the. Uh, the liner notes and also knew that he was moving. And, uh, I said to him, basically, I want you to use every color of paper that you only have five or six sheets of that you can't sell. 
and you just want to get rid of. And I want you to use every color that you you know have. Just like use the excess stuff. Uh, for me, from you know an environmental standpoint, I think that's a great thing. Um, plus, it makes all the the things a little u- unique. All the packages unique, and then the uh, the actual packaging. I, I it's you know look through a Uline catalog. They have so many amazing <laughs> things. I love looking through those books. That's that's like my uh, I guess. Uline is my Playboy magazine. It's like I can figure out all these ways. Um, I've always been into the aesthetics of things and why 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 things pique my interest because they look really cool or they they're really great uh, uh, packaging. Um, and I wanted it to be that way. In the end, I I mainly did it because it cost me nothing. Sure. I mean, it basically costs next to nothing. And I saved money, um, but when you buy this album, it it's everything is hand numbered, and everyone looks a little different, you know. And so I, I feel like it's easier to sell it because it's uh, it's a little more handmade, and uh, I have to have a a party at my house to make these. You know, I make you know fifty at a time, and uh, you know it's a, a good bottle of wine and a couple new albums, and then I decide, hey, I need to make some <laughs> albums, you know, and package the album. And and that was a good thing for me. I, I like it, and I also liked being involved with everything. Mm. I was a, a band director for a while, and and at a very large band down south, and I I am a little bit of a tyrant. I like to be involved in everything, and that's one thing I'm learning how to not do, you know. But uh, it makes it a good thing for a do-it-yourself uh, musician. Sure. Why make an album at all? I don't know. It might have been the dumbest thing I've done. Um, but what made you make it? What What made you decide this is the time? I'm ready now to put something on record. Um, Paul Blay. I read a Paul Blay book that I think is out of print now. Um, you can get them, but I think they're like 80 bucks on Amazon. So the Paul Blay book, um, and I'm going to put this in my own words, but he basically says... You're going to hate your first 12 albums, so you might as well get the motherfuckers out as quick as possible. <laughs> and, and I, I actually love this album and I really, I really like it. But in some ways, I understand that thought. Like, just, you have to just do it. Um, it's, you just have to do it. It was, uh, um, back home, one of my really good friends was uh, a doctor and, grew up in a small town and I remember telling him I wanted to uh, try out for men's league soccer team, you know, but I, I was old and well, I was in college and yeah, I thought I'd wait till next year. And I remember him telling me, you know, if you'll, if you put it off till next year, you'll never do it. And that was a great thing. And, and then the Paul Blade just saying, look, you just gotta, gotta get it out. Um, and, uh, 
I haven't read that book in a while. I, I really hope he he said that. But I, I, it sounds like something Paul would say. <laughs> yeah, it's I like enough. that. It's it, he, something he said now. That's for sure. <laughs> it's interesting because it, it sounds like you you went through your education with one idea of what your life might turn out to be in mind, and it has now it looks like to me become something utterly different. What is it? What was the catalyst for that? <laughs> Left turn, and if you say Matt Wilson, I'm going to turn I'm the not, recorder no, off. Well, okay. not Matt Wilson. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I'm sick of that guy. <laughs> no, that was a great thing, and I'm so glad. Um, growing up as in a small town, I played uh, a lot of drums and put myself through undergrad playing playing drum set. In country bars and uh, Knoxville's not a small town, is it? No, I grew, grew up in up. Moultrie, Georgia. Oh, I just okay, lived okay. In, yeah. Gotcha, please. So I grew up in, in Moultrie, Georgia, a, v- a very tiny town in, in South Georgia that's pretty artsy-fartsy for a, a supposedly southern redneck mm. town. It's really not. It's great, awesome, hip town. Uh, I was exposed to tons of music. Uh, people always ask me, like, moving from a small town and, and moving to Knoxville, which was a little bit bigger, and then moving to New York, how I dealt with that. Um, the... My town of Moultrie, Georgia, there were no private schools. The nearest private school was an hour away. So the richest kid went to school with the poorest kid. Um, and three counties fed into the high school. So that's, my high school was a mini New York. And that, that's the easiest way. You couldn't, es- you know, you can't escape the homeless guy on the subway. That's how my high school was. You could not escape. Uh, the good thing was all these great people that were not from my hometown turned me on to some really great music. So I was really into to prog rock, of course, and uh, and really got into the blues. And uh, in undergrad, I put myself through school playing country bars, and uh, I worked on the, the chitlin circuit with, uh, with Johnny Marshall and the Blues Igniters. I was a little pimply white kid. On tour. It was, it was great. And, uh, you know, playing shuffles for, for three hours a night to people that are dancing to them. Um, that's a very good indicator if, if you can kind of swing or not. If people are dancing, it might be okay. If they are not <laughs> dancing, you should get out. Um, and so I, well, then I was a band director. I, I actually, yeah, you know, I graduated there. I graduated uh, undergrad and um, kind of didn't know what to do. So I moved to Knoxville, Tennessee and uh, started my master's in classical music. And about a year in, I was so over avant um, Japanese marimba literature <laughs> that uh, I didn't know it's what It's hard to, to imagine such a state could occur, but <laughs> yeah, I'll grant it. Go ahead. Yeah, it's, so that was it was really tough. And I remember I was living with a bass player, and uh, I played drums. It was the summer, and I, was, I, I think I had just rolled out of bed at probably 3 in the afternoon. And he said he was, he was griping because his, his drummer – called and is not going to make a rehearsal. And he said to me, you play the drums. Can you play da, 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 da. Can you play that for two hours? And I thought, well, you know, I don't have anything else to do. I'll go do this. So I, uh, I this was, I hate to say, because I haven't been Really playing jazz, but I always kind of listened to it, but not really playing jazz. I mean, I think this happened in 99 or 2000. And I played that day and, and, uh, I started, you know, I comped with the left hand and was playing the hi hat. And I actually, I f- fell in love. That was it. It was, and then, uh, started hanging out with Donald Brown. And then he had a, like a best of 50 CDs, like what to go buy. And I remember I, I think I overdrew my account that day and, uh, started there. And that was it. I, I remember that three months later, I played on someone's senior recital, which blew my mind. Um, and I, you know, thought I was going to be a band director and teach drum and bugle corps for the rest of my life. 
very glad. I'm very <laughs> glad that I had nothing to do that day. But even <clears throat> even falling in love with with the music that day, that's there's still a pretty big leap of faith from there to where you are now. Because I mean, one thing about being a drum and bugle corps director for the rest of your life is that it pays money. So <laughs> that's one major difference between that and the career as, as a jazz drummer, at least at the beginning. And I mean, you had, you know, you had degrees and I mean, what seemed like or what could have been a fairly stable life path. I mean, you could have always played jazz on the weekends or whatever, like a lot of people do and done your teaching gig, you know, Monday through Friday. But instead, here you are, you know, in Brooklyn playing, you know, really uh, adventurous music on an album you put out yourself. I mean, so there must have what, – what is it that actually made you say, not only do I want to play this music, but I want to make this what is at the center of my life? Uh, a lot of it is uh, a guy named Keith Brown, who is the, the, the jazz percussion teacher at, at, at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And man, thank goodness, because I know that for the first year or two, I was a grad TA. I'm, I'm pretty sure he did not like me. But thank God he didn't give up on me. Um, and so I was in school, and then I actually became a band director. I, I quit school and, and became a band director for three or four years and and uh, was teaching drum and bugle corps and, and taught senior corps. And I actually woke up on a... I woke up on a gym floor at about three in the morning um, and realized that this is definitely not what I wanted to do. <laughs> and and so I, I got in the car and I, I like quit. I kind of quit it all. And and so <laughs> I came back and, you know, finished the year out and it, it kind of worked out and I was teaching. It just all ended up working out. And every time I would worry about it, something else would happen. And, and, um, uh, you know, had been taking lessons and, and, uh, you know, then, then went down to teaching half a day and, and playing a lot more and going on tour. And, uh, and that job fell through. I wasn't teaching half a day. And, um, I got a call, uh, University of Tennessee needed, uh, they um, had to find a new head percussion director, needed to know if I would come teach for a year or two while they did a search committee and worked with another guy. And, and again, it, it, I was taking classes, but I was still playing jazz. <laughs> and it just kept working out and working out. And every time um, I was worried something, would, something good would happen. Uh, through that, I was, you know, playing with a 16-piece swing band, uh, which was amazing. I mean, how many times you get to do that? And then one of the other the other jobs I had, which was really, um, it was a great job, and it, it was very good for me. It was odd, but I worked at a very large church. Um, I like to refer to them as uh, Six Flags Over Jesus churches. <laughs> and we had a 60-piece orchestra and 300 in the choir, and um, it was a good salary and, and to, to basically, it was a studio orchestra, you know, like they had back in the day. And, and to get to do that, um, you know, one day a week and, and make a lot, we made a lot of recordings for, with a lot of famous, you know, Southern gospel people. And it was amazing. It was amazing. Oh, that's great. It was an inter- interesting church, but it was amazing. <laughs> we won't, we won't get into that. But uh, again, it was another thing that helped helped me out. But and thank goodness Keith Brown at, at the University of Tennessee, he just you know kept helping me out.
I know you've got some, uh, in a couple months, uh, tour that's happening. Can you talk about that, where it is? Yeah, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to the Midwest with Kirk Kanufke and uh, Chicago, St. Paul, uh, Madison. And then later that month, I believe Jeff, um, Jeff Letter, is uh, we're going to do the smart car tour. We're going to call it the smart car tour and go east coast nice. a little bit. And uh, and I think there'll be something else in in the city. I'm just it's always tough to come back from Christmas break and try to book stuff. Yeah, no, fair enough. My guest is Derek Dickens. The new album is called Speed Date, and uh, I highly recommend it. It's a really great record. It's a great way to start um, a recording career. I know it's not your the first thing you've done a record, but the first as a leader. Uh, and I applaud you for uh, for doing it, seeing it through to reality. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you for asking, man. It's great to hang. That's music from drummer Derek Dickens and his new album, Speed Date. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session. Please do become a member if you like what you hear. It's very easy to do at thejazzsession.com slash join. That's what allows me to sleep indoors and eat, and I enjoy doing both those things and really could use your help. Meanwhile, get out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.